Chapter 23 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 23 Organizing an Audience. 1. Art thrives upon appreciation and the most vital and human art has been produced in those periods when the love of art has been widespread throughout a great community. The general public of Periclean Athens loved architecture, sculpture and the drama with a love like that for food and drink, and Phidias and Sophocles were hailed as heroes by adoring boys. If you had cast a casual stone in 14th century Florence, you would have hit some lover of Madonna's, when Chimabui had completed his Virgin Enthroned, the entire town turned out for a holiday and bore the picture, their picture, triumphantly along the street of the beautiful ladies to set it up in the south transept of Santa Maria Novella. And if in Elizabethan London you had mingled with the jostling throng that swarmed over London Bridge, you might have been sure that anyone who trod upon your toes had applauded the acting of Burbage and hearkened to the hallowed line, The rest is silence. So, in the great age of Gothic architecture, the entire populace of Amiens, from the highest noble to the lowest peasant, toiled and saved and sacrificed, and poured their life's substance and their heart's desire into that supreme cathedral, which stands not as the monument of a single architect, nor even of a group of architects, but as a monument of civic aspiration and communistic joy. Art is misconceived by those dilettanti who regard it merely as the personal expression of some select and lonely soul. Art at its highest is neither lonely nor select, but public and general in its appeal and its importance. And a great work of art, once fashioned, ceases to belong personally to the man who made it, but belongs instead to his nation and his age. The fact that great artists appear not singly but in groups, and always at such times and places when the general public recognises their utterances as the expression of its own unuttered ecstasy of life, indicates that art should be regarded not as a function of the individual, but as a function of the populace. It follows that the best way to evoke great art is to educate the public to a great appreciation. Give the plant the proper soil and it will thrive and flower. What the people really want, they assuredly shall have. And when they want great art, great artists will emerge to give it to them. If we want great statues for our city, our primary concern is not to educate a sculptor to fashion them, for the sculptor can educate himself. Our concern is, rather, to educate our citizens to desire them. It is not so much our painters that we need to send to Rome and Paris, but if, in a spiritual sense, we could send our whole community to the capitals of art, we should surely have our painting. For history teaches us that great men arise, as if by miracle, to fulfil a great and public need. There has rarely been a revolution without its Washington, there has seldom been a civil war without its Lincoln. 
gather a great community all eager for listening, and art shall speak to it with a great voice. When all Italy wants a Michelangelo, all Italy shall surely have him, and when all Elizabethan London loves the drama, some Shakespeare shall certainly arise. But if all this applies to art in general, it applies with a particular emphasis to that most democratic of the arts, the drama. In a special and immediate sense, the drama is a function of the populace. The reality of an acted play is evoked by a collaboration between those whose minds are active behind the footlights and those whose minds are active in the auditorium, and the phenomenon will fail unless the minds of the artists and the minds of the auditors answer each to each with sympathy and appreciation. It is no longer necessary in these pages to insist that the dramatist is dependent on his audience, that his themes, his thoughts and his emotions must fall within the mental range of the multitude that he is writing for. Without an appreciative audience a play cannot endure. Empty your auditorium and your work of art ceases to exist, and in the theatre the general and democratic public tells emphatically by its patronage what it is the public wants. The power to save or damn a play is vested neither in the author, nor the actor, nor the critic, nor the manager. It is vested solely in the audience. It follows with irrefutable logic that to support a worthy drama you must have a worthy public, and that a noble dramatist can arise and do his work only when he is assured of the appreciation of a noble audience. Here, then, we strike at the heart of the fallacy of most of those dreamers who endeavour to uplift the stage. They begin upon the wrong side of the footlights. They try to uplift the author, or the actor, or the manager, whereas, to attain any real result, they ought first to uplift the audience. They complain because the managers are commercial, but there is no solid ground for this complaint. Every art must be fostered by business. The dramatic art must be exploited by the theatre business, and the manager must be a businessman. A businessman would be a fool unless he regulated his business in accordance with the primary economic principle of supply and demand. Shakespeare and Moliere, who were managers, as well as actors and dramatists, conducted their business upon this economic principle, and were just as commercial as Mr. Schubert or Mr. Brady. Also, when a dramatist has written one sort of play that the public likes, it is futile to berate him and demand that he shall write another sort of play that his public does not like. And it is silly to ask an actress who plays a chorus lady well to play Lady Macbeth badly in the fancied interests of art. The only movement for uplifting the stage which can have any practical and good result must be a movement for uplifting the audience. The way to improve the author, the actor and the manager leads through the box office. Pay them better to produce and exploit the best dramatic art, and they will not fob you off with art that is inferior. They will not be able to afford to do so. These considerations are immediate and practical, but in a larger and more idealistic outlook, it is clear that we cannot expect great art in our theatre until our audience is ready for it. So long as the public remains contented with inferiority, our drama will remain inferior. 
so long as a masterpiece of dramaturgic craftsmanship like the thunderbolt is allowed to pass unappreciated by our public so long must managers prefer to set forth a tawdry monstrosity like every woman so long as the public applauds miss adams performance in chanticleer and refuses to appreciate mr frank reicher's performance in the scarecrow so long will false acting hold its own against true acting on our stage one of the things that the american theatre of today stands most in need of is a sane persistent movement to educate the public taste in drama and improve the mental tenor of the average audience two but in present-day america the problem of educating the theatre-going public and the further problem of holding it together after it is educated are both extremely difficult in reviewing the history of the theatre we perceive that in every great age of dramatic art the audience has heretofore been concentrated in a single city sophocles in athens shakespeare in london moliere in paris could look their auditors in the eyes the entire state was centred in a city and the whole theatre-going population of that city was under the immediate observation of the great theatric artists they were not troubled by any doubt as to where their public was to be found or who the people were who made it up the theatre-going population of athens london or paris was not according to our modern notions very large but it was so concentrated that it could easily and eagerly support a whole great group of dramatists in america at the present day there must actually be more people who are able to appreciate the best dramatic art than there ever were in the athens of sophocles the london of shakespeare or the paris of moliere there must indeed be many times the number for our population is enormous and the standards of our public education are higher than those of elizabethan london or the paris of the grand monarque but our problem is to find out who these people are and where they are they are not concentrated in a single city they are scattered over a widespread continent and they are intermingled with eighty million other people who do not care about dramatic art at all no dramatist can look them in the eyes and when a play is produced that makes a special appeal to the best minds the manager does not know where to send it our problem therefore is not only to improve our audience but also to organize it we need to discover what people constitute already our best theatre-going public we want their names and their addresses we need to estimate their numerical strength and to study their geographic distribution if they will come forward publicly in a solid organization and will demand good drama the managers will have to find it for them and will be forced by that same principle of supply and demand to cry out to the creators for good art until they get it three these two problems the problem of educating the theatre-going public and the problem of discovering and organizing the educated public that already exists in scattered units throughout the country are being coped with courageously by a noteworthy society that is known as the drama league of america this society began with an idea and consequently much more may be hoped from it than from the new theatre foundation in new york which began merely with a building it began also without money 
and this is another hopeful sign, for it is an error to suppose that the theatre may be uplifted by the unadvised munificence of millionaires. Art, indeed, is ever in need of money, but it is always more in need of thought, and thus far the Drama League has multiplied itself amazingly, without endowment, by the sheer strength of the idea behind it. This idea occurred, in the first instance, to certain women in Evanston, Illinois, who had formed themselves into a drama club for the purpose of studying the best dramatic literature and observing the best plays presented during the season in the neighbouring city of Chicago. They appointed a study committee to make out a syllabus of plays and criticisms to be read, and a play-going committee to attend all productions of legitimate drama in Chicago, and subsequently tell their fellow members which of the plays they had attended were the best to see. It then occurred to these women that if their system could be expanded till it covered the continent, it would result both in the education and in the organisation of a better theatre-going public than the heterogeneous and scattered public that it exists today. Consequently, on April the 25th, 1910, they called a meeting at the Art Institute in Chicago, which was attended by delegates from 63 clubs, aggregating 10,000 members. At this meeting, they expanded their idea. It was accepted with enthusiasm by the affiliated clubs, and the Drama League of America was launched. In three years and a half, it has expanded to a membership of over 50,000 federally organized in every state of the Union, and the National Federation of Women's Clubs has placed its Department of Drama Study under the direction of the League and advised every woman's club in the country to join the organization. It is entirely fitting that this great movement should, at the outset, be fostered mainly by women and by women's clubs, for every student of the contemporary theatre knows that the destiny of our drama has lain for a long time in the hands of women. Shakespeare wrote for an audience made up mainly of men and boys, and gave them Rosalind and Falstaff. Ibsen and Pinero have written for an audience made up mainly of women, and have given them Nora Helmer and Zoe Blundell. Our matinee audiences are composed almost entirely of women, and our evening audiences are composed of women also, and the men that they have brought with them. Every contemporary playwright knows that it is by the suffrages of women that his work must stand or fall. In fact, the theatre is today the one great public institution in which votes for women is the rule, and men are overwhelmingly outvoted. Any movement to improve the theatre-going public, any movement to uplift the audience, must therefore be directed towards the women of America, and it is logical and fitting that the campaign of education and the campaign of organisation should be conducted by women and by women's clubs. In conducting both of these campaigns, the Drama League of America has proceeded with a reassuring sanity, believing firmly that any endeavour toward the amelioration of dramatic art must be conducted democratically the League has opened its membership to everyone and has fixed its annual dues at the low sum of one dollar. Anybody who is interested in the movement may at once become a member of the League by sending one dollar to the secretary of the nearest centre. In return, he will receive, as they are issued, all the publications of the League. 
These publications consist of outlines for study prepared by the Educational Committee and bulletins concerning current plays prepared by the Playgoing Committee. The Drama Study Department prepares and issues several courses every year in the study of the drama. Each of these courses is outlined in a syllabus, giving lists of plays and books of reference and criticism, so that anyone, by following the syllabus, can read his way easily through the course in any public library. Such eminent educators as Professor George Pierce Baker and Professor Brander Matthews have given their time to the preparation of these outlines. Under the leadership of Mr. W. N. C. Carlton, librarian of the Newbury Library in Chicago, a movement has been instituted for the segregation in public libraries throughout the country of the books included in these courses so that they may be set immediately accessible to everyone. By this means, any theatre-goer in any city of America may, without any expenditure of money, educate himself toward an appreciation of the best that has been thought and said in the theatre of the world, and may thus improve the standards of his own taste regarding the contemporary drama. But the work of the Playgoing Committee is even more interesting in its possibilities. This committee is made up of two sections, a local, non-professional group who attend all the legitimate productions in a given centre, and an advisory professional board consisting of such eminent critics of the drama as Mr Walter Pritchard Eaton, Mr Charles H Caffin, Professor Richard Burton, and others of similar standing. The members of the local board pay for their seats and establish no professional relation with the managers. After seeing a certain play, they talk it over. If they deem it unworthy of recommendation, they make no announcement whatsoever to the members of the League. But if they deem it worthy of support, they at once issue a bulletin advising the members of the League to see it and stating succinctly the reasons why it should be seen. They condemn nothing, but, upon the appearance of a good play, they urge their many thousand members to support it with a paying attendance early in its run. During the first year of the League's activity, the local committee in Chicago attended 53 performances and issued 14 bulletins recommending 23 plays. The range of their appreciation was Catholic. They not only recommended Little Eolf, but it is reassuring to note that they also recommended The Aviator, on the ground, to quote their bulletin, that, like good farce in general, the play is diverting and refreshing. This touch of human nature relieves them of any possible imputation of being highbrow in their tastes, for it takes a pretty sane committee to enjoy both the merry breeze of farce and the miasma of the later Ibsen. In the opinion of the present writer, they recommended only two plays which were unworthy of support, and on the other hand, they committed only a single sin of omission. A similar work is now accomplished in several other centres, notably New York, Brooklyn, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington and Los Angeles, and in due time, by an exchange of bulletins from one producing centre to another, it will become possible so to coordinate this campaign that any recommended play will be greeted by an adequate audience when it moves to a new city on its route.
the president of the drama league mrs a star best of evanston illinois has written to the present writer we have no definite pledge from any of our members they are merely expected to support league plays whenever possible and when attending the theatre to choose a league play it seems to me that the power of the league would be greatly increased if those of its members who can easily afford to attend at least twenty plays a year would definitely pledge themselves to give their financial support to all the plays which are recommended to them by their play-going committee a pledged attendance of ten thousand in any important producing centre would absolutely ensure the success of a production and such an organised audience would be able to demand from the commercial-minded managers a first-class presentation of any play they wished to see. Such productions, for example, as Mr. Lawrence Irving's very interesting presentations of those two masterpieces by Monsieur Eugène Brieux, The Affinity, Les Anetons, and The Three Daughters of Monsieur Dupont, could have been kept alive for an entire season and sent from city to city if they had been called for by an organised audience pledged to pay its money for good art. And when the League increases to a 100,000 members, it can, by tabulating geographically its constituents, exert an influence over the bookings of the managers, which neither of the two big booking syndicates will be willing to resist. Thus, in time... Any play which should be approved by the best scholars and critics of the drama in America would be insured against financial failure. From this it would be but a step to a condition under which a bad play would not be able financially to hold its own. Every woman would go under and the thunderbolt survive. The Drama League of America is also instituting a movement to encourage the publication of such contemporary plays as are approved by its advisory committee. This again is an excellent idea. Our publishers have hitherto been chary of printing plays because they have considered it impossible to sell them. But if only 2,000 members of the League would pledge themselves to buy such plays as their committee recommends, there is not a first-class publishing house in America that would not be eager to place these plays upon the market. There must surely be 2,000 readers in this country who would be glad to read, for instance, such a delicate and exquisite comedy as The Mollusk by Mr. Hubert Henry Davies, if, by organising and announcing themselves, they will tell the publishers who and where they are, the publication of such pieces will henceforth be assured. 4. There is yet another labour which, in the opinion of the present writer, it is the duty of the Drama League to undertake in pursuance of its purpose to improve the quality and the constitution of the theatre-going public. This is the labour of discouraging dramatic criticism that is bad by encouraging dramatic criticism that is good. The League should swing the full power of its organised constituency to the support of the very few newspapers and magazines throughout the country that treat the drama seriously. The reason why most newspapers, and even many magazines, report plays as they report baseball games, is that their publishers and editors honestly believe that the reading public does not care for scholarly and dignified and earnest criticism. These gentlemen should be taught the falsity of their underestimate of the intelligence and interest of the theatre-going public, 
It is a disgrace to our theatre and an insult to our public that, instead of employing men like Mr. A. B. Walkley, Mr. William Archer and Mr. Bernard Shaw to teach us what is admirable in the best labours of our dramatists, many of our newspapers of largest circulation and widest influence employ reporters to comment on the colour of an actor's waistcoat or a leading lady's eyes. To cultivate a noble audience in America, we shall need the service of true criticism and the honourable labours of true critics. But though good criticism, like good art, may be had for the asking, the public must arise and ask for it. End of chapter 23